Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. Hi, and I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome to this, our sixth podcast, or vlog, if you're watching it on YouTube. What Doctors has been around since 1989. We've been researching medicine all that time and producing a monthly publication, starting with a newsletter. Now today it's a magazine. He says holding it up for those watching the vlog. And um, so we've got plenty to talk about with health. We've got plenty of insights and ideas that could help you navigate your way through the health news. So without further ado, let's go to the top story of the day. And um, I can still just about, as a faint memory, remember what my mother said to me. Brush your teeth in the morning and in the evening. The trouble is, a new research program's just come out and said that, yeah, brush your teeth, but don't use toothpaste. <laughs> All these commercially available toothpaste brands that promise to reduce sensitivity or reduce your risk of decay don't work. Not only do they not work, they're so abrasive that even in the five days they were testing these toothpaste, some surface uh, loss occurred on the, on the surface of the teeth. And so and then none of them did what they said they'd do on the can. So, um, you know, this is a bit of a worry. So what do you reckon, Lynn? Well, again, like with most products these days, there are a lot of natural substances that have been made into toothpastes that don't contain a lot of the chemical nasties like SLS, which has got a lot of health issues, and many of those abrasives. And they've also had some studies showing that they can prevent plaque. I mean, there's a couple of brands that have been proven to do so, and they're you know listed on our website, wddty.com. So you can use lots of other things. Um, they even have you know dental sticks and a few other things that are the more primitive way of cleaning your teeth or just using a brush. But you know, worry less about what's on your brush and more about how you brush. Mm. And um, also what you put in, in your tongue, because they said, you know, another vital part of uh, teeth erosion was the food you eat. And the more acidic it is, the more likely you are to cause problems for your teeth. And when you think of acidic, just think of, you know, too much meat, too much sugar, all of those things, a lot of dairy, all of those things are highly acidic. And they will contribute to this as well as just contribute to, you know, ill health in general. So um, what we're talking about, you know, high sugar in particular, uh, that's going to wreck your teeth and it's going to wreck, wreck your gut. Mm. And I think that's so important these days with um, increasing awareness of, of gum disease and the role that it plays in many chronic conditions around the body, especially those relating to inflammatory processes. So that would include heart disease, diabetes, and, and some of the cancers. Well, a really interesting factoid that I discovered from one of our panel members, Dr. Sarah Myhill, has to do with gum plaque and gum disease. She found that she's a big proponent of taking um, vitamin C, to bowel tolerance, just to maintain health. And she found that if you rinse out your mouth with, um, with vitamin C, with water with vitamin C, so let's say your bowel, bowel to tolerance is something like 10 grams. Um, you take a little bit of that in divided doses, so you take five grams and five grams and you rinse out your mouth with it. She found two things. When people are consistently taking high dose vitamin C, 
they have a, a sterile gut. They don't have so many gut bugs like candida, but they also have a sterile mouth and it guards against a lot of things like plaque. So there's loads of other ways to clean your teeth that are much more effective. Mm. So brush away, but don't use one of the commercially big brands. It doesn't, doesn't mean it doesn't apply to all toothpaste out there, but certainly the big names, which I think we could all name right now, which we won't. Yeah, have a good diet and check out high-dose vitamin C. One of the failings of modern medicine is that it mistakes the symptoms for the disease. And whilst there's nothing wrong in itself in treating symptoms such as pain, if you are in pain, it makes sense not to be in pain, it doesn't really address the problem because what's causing the pain? And whilst things like drugs can deaden pain, the process that's causing it is still going on. And this mistake in identifying the manifestation of disease for the process of disease itself is one of the big failings of medicine. And fortunately, we're coming into an age now where people and some researchers are looking a little bit beneath the surface and looking more at the real underlying cause of disease. And one they've just been looking at is one of the most common diseases of all, which is type 2 diabetes, which is known as the lifestyle disease, which, as its name suggests, comes about from eating too many of the wrong foods and living a Western life without exercise and all the rest of it. And of course, it's typically sort of characterized as being a disease of insulin resistance and raised blood sugar levels. We eat the wrong sorts of foods. The pancreas raises the insulin to, 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 get, to break down those into blood sugar, but eventually... It's a, it's a system that wears itself out. And when insulin just isn't effective anymore, diabetes um, starts, uh, starts mm. manifesting. But there's something beneath that, which is really quite interesting. And the clue that uh, researchers from Heidelberg University had was that you know, even when diabetics get their uh, blood sugar levels down to within a reasonable or healthy range, a lot of the symptoms are still there. And so they dug a bit deeper and found that, in fact, beneath that is the, the, the molecules uh, of diabetics is actually the problem and not the manifestation, the symptoms of the disease itself. Mm. And it's molecules known as MG, which is a glucose metabolite, which actually does react to L-carnosine, which is an amino acid, which suggests if that, I mean, it all sounds a bit complicated, but really the bottom line of this is that this amino acid, L-carnosine, could actually treat and actually reverse the processes that we call diabetes. Well, I think that's really amazing. And it once again demonstrates that many illnesses we have are some sort of metabolic thing going awry. And when you can find that actual trigger, you can treat it. And as Brian says, this... L-carnosine, which is, you know, it's, a, it's a, actually a dipeptide that is from amino acids. But it's when, when these researchers gave patients just this simple supplement, they started getting better. It was really incredible. Mm -hmm. and but, but fundamentally better. Because whilst um, either drugs or, or diet will treat the disease as far as its manifestation goes, it doesn't treat the underlying problem. 
And no. this is what this supplement seems to be able to do. It fixes your glu- glucose metabolism, basically. Mm. So this is really exciting. Imagine if that's what it takes. I mean, it's really also important to change your diet. A lot of people with type 2 diabetes have got into this situation because of years and years of, you know, of overwhelming their insulin system and their pancreas. And so the pancreas in the, uh, no longer knows what to do. The insulin becomes insensitive. So you do need to go and have a reasonable low sugar diet, yeah. but with you know low carb diet. But if you can also take this and this restores your insulin sensitivity, that's really brilliant. Yeah, and I think what is interesting about it is, the, is getting down to the molecular level, and that's reversing the damage that uh, diabetes can do to nerves and kidneys, which you know, a diet or even drugs on their own aren't going to do. Mm. But, you know, you're not going to hear about this in lots of different places because, you know, drug companies can't make a fortune from L-carnosine. You can buy it in a health store. Um, so this isn't like a very expensive diabetes drug you have to take for life. So expect there to be some resistance for this. Get your supplies while you can. Mm-hmm. Chronic low back pain is something that virtually every single adult will suffer from at some point in their lives. And if they toddle or crawl along to their doctor, the doctor doesn't have any solutions. And what he does offer doesn't work and can even make the situation worse. For example, you know, many is the doctor who says, you know, bed rest. Bed rest is the worst thing you can do. For, for chronic low back pain, or they'll maybe suggest a strong painkiller, injections, or even surgery. And um, they've done a big review of that quite recently into all the conventional ways that they are addressing chronic low back pain. And they found, guess what? None of them work. Not one of them. And the trouble is that sort of doctors know that as well. And the real tragedy is, as, as these um, researchers from Warwick University found, is that you know, doctors are set along a very strict paradigm of treatment. You know, they are controlled and they are regulated. And they must follow those protocols very, very strictly. You know, it almost doesn't matter if the patient dies, but just as long as you follow the protocols and the agreed treatments, you'll be fine. But if you wavered off that path, and successfully treated the patient, you are actually gonna could be in trouble. Mm. And so this is the problem. So they, they said, well, you know, that we do know there are things that can help uh, chronic back pain. And one of them, for example, is acupuncture. But low, you know, betide any doctor who says suggest this as a possible treatment. He just wouldn't dare. It's not one of those agreed so-called proven treatments that he can turn to. You know, as I said, his hands are tied by what they call best practice guidelines. Mm. And I think, you know, even as you say, even doctors, there is a well-known orthopedic surgeon, um, really renowned um, in Glasgow called Gordon Waddell. And he wrote about this and he said, essentially, of all back pain patients, doctors are able to deal with 4%, 4%. And the rest are essentially fall into the category of disaster and failed back. And that really what tops the list is surgery. 
he found that in most cases, doctors, when they do surgery on backs, make things worse. Mm. So one of the big secrets about back pain that increasingly new uh, forms of treatment are recognizing is that it doesn't have to do with the bones. You know, the bones just sit there. <laughs> and the only thing that moves those bones are muscles. And they find that imbalanced muscle patterns, inbuilt and ingrained muscle patterns that are reinforced all the time by the brain, oftentimes are the real cause. And when they're dealt with, and you know, increasingly more systems like Feldenkrais and, and Egoscu and many other systems like that, that Mitchell Yass is treating patients too, many people like that are really focusing on muscle rehabilitation. And when they do that, the person gets out of pain. Mm. And the researchers say, look, you know, carry on being active. It's the best thing you can do, even up to and including bending and lifting, as long as you do it properly and don't, you know, bend your back and so you lift from the hips and knees. And in fact, may even speed recovery. Um, so they said, if you must take painkillers, okay, understood, but be careful. It's the road to opioid painkillers and you've got to be very careful with that. And they said the only people who really should overly worry about low back pain are if you uh, suffer from uh, problems passing urine or um, impaired sexual function or feeling numbness in the genitals or buttocks, loss of bladder or bowel control or loss of power in the legs, then that could be serious and could mean something else is going on. Otherwise, um, you know, act, stay active, don't stay in bed and find the nearest acupuncturist because the doctor can't do it. Absolutely. Okay, if you were a medical detective and you've got a problem you can't resolve, where do you look? Well, increasingly, you look at your gut because that seems to be the home and the start of so many conditions, so many problems are to do with a lack of um, good flora and fauna and whatever it is in the gut. And um, the latest disease which they have now related to the gut is PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, which is a hormone imbalance that can lead to infertility, diabetes and heart disease. And they discovered that women who do suffer from PCOS actually have less diverse gut bacteria compared to healthier women. So this was a common feature they saw in sufferers, and they do believe that this could well be the place where the problem starts. So it's something that all women suffering from this need to start looking at and seeing about populating their guts with good bacteria all over again. Well, and I think, you know, what we're discovering is that gut issues can really affect so many parts of the body, even mood. I mean, one of the things we're talking about in this month's issue of What Doctors Don't Tell You is the fact that mood swings, even bipolar um, uh, disorder, has a lot to do with inflammation. And inflammation really starts in the gut. It starts with too much of something or too little of something. And usually it's too much of the wrong bacteria and bugs in the gut. Um, if you think of the gut, and we're covering this in a future issue too, you've got really three elements of the gut. You've got the stomach, the small intestine, and the large intestine. And in those, all three, you can have 
imbalances, serious imbalances, with too many bacteria, too much, too many parasites, not enough stomach acid, you know, and all of these things, and also a leaky gut, a gut that leaks two big food molecules that go into your system and can cause all kinds of havoc, hormonal imbalances, as in with PCOS, and also even brain issues, like with bipolar. So probably, you know, they, the, the old saying, death begins in the colon, you know, it really, life mm. begins in the colon too. Mm. Well, it's quite an interesting characteristic they discovered. Not only did the women have this lack of gut diversity, but they also had very high levels of testosterone and much higher than women who, who were healthy. And um, so there would seem to be some sort of link between those two. Um, astonishingly, the current uh, standard treatment for PCOS is the contraceptive pill. Hmm. And um, so, you know, really the solution has to be with pre and probiotics to re-establish gut diversity, I think. Yeah, I mean, you need to find out what's going on in there. Because as I say, there's, there's oftentimes a situation where you don't have enough good guys and you have too many bad guys. So you need to find that out. And the last thing you want to be doing is just hormonal castration, which is essentially what the pill is. It just stops your body from, you know, doing the normal hormonal functions. So that, of course, stops things, but it doesn't cure things. And there's plenty of ways to cure it. And so we come to our drug alert. We always have a drug alert every every week on our podcast because you know, it's important stuff. And this week it's especially important because it's about a class of antibiotics which are routinely prescribed for treating <clears throat> uh, urinary tract infections, UTIs. And the class of uh, antibiotics we're talking about are the fluoroquinolones, which include levaquine, cipro and floxin which can actually cause um, damage to the aortic um, the artery, the main artery, the aorta, which can cause aneurysms, which means a rupture, and sadly will kill you. And um, it's extraordinary, really, how this drug has been allowed to be prescribed as routinely as it is. I mean, it's got, a, it's got history, this drug. I mean, the mm -hmm. FDA themselves has, have already said, look, it causes serious nerve damage. And as recently as 2016, the FDA issued an alert about the drugs. Um, because, um, and, you know, they're now saying, look, to the doctors, you, you, these aren't routine drugs, guys. You don't just dish these out. These are for last resort patients where nothing else can help them. Mm -hmm. Where they themselves are in a life or death situation, then prescribe this drug. Otherwise, you don't touch them. Hmm. I mean, thank goodness the, the FDA did that. I mean, they do issue alerts on drugs. But <clears throat> as you say, a lot of this is nothing new. And that's the annoyance about things like antibiotics. Um, they're given out routinely, and doctors think, oh, it's an antibiotic. It's not really going to have many side effects. But Aside from wiping out the really good bacteria in the gut, which have, can have catastrophic effects, um, there's also loads of other things that these drugs do. And I invite you, if you're given a prescription, one of the best things you can do, one of the scariest things you can do too, is to look up that drug and what's written about it in the physician's desk reference, which is 
the drug Bible that all doctors check. The problem is they don't normally read the fine print or, or new drugs come along and they're not keeping abreast. They can't keep abreast. And those drug side effects that are allowed routinely in drugs are, are pretty scary. This is one of them. Um, the good news is it's not as bad as we thought, right? Well, yeah, if there's a yeah, if there's a if there's a, a, a silver lining to this particular cloud, is that um, the um, researchers from the Karolinsky Institute uh, found that in fact the the threat of an aortic uh, aneurysm isn't quite as bad as they thought it was going to be. Um, but it's um, it's down to 66%, which will still be 82 new cases per million treatments. So it's still bad enough. Yeah, it may only, you know, it's 82 out of a million chance that you're going to have your, you know, the aorta, the main artery to your heart bust open and kill you. But there's loads of other things, right? There's nerve damage, tendon damage, joint uh, central nervous system damage. I mean, mm -hmm. this is the whole point about mm -hmm. these antibiotics. Mm -hmm. You know, what you really have to do with any kind of drug, it's so vital, it's so basic, is weigh the benefits versus the risks. Mm -hmm. If you look at all of these very dangerous and possibly permanent and even life-threatening risks, you got to say, is it worth it for this? Or can I take a safer drug? Or is there a safer way to treat this? And that's really good advice for any drug before you take that pill. Okay, the paleo diet. One of the diets du jour, isn't it? I mean, we're all into paleo at the moment. And when we think of paleo, we sort of bunch it in with sort of things like Atkins, I think, in a way we think it's a very much a meat-based diet. You know, low carbs, it's very, I know with um, paleo, other things as well, but you know, meat. But researchers have done some, some work on this and said, well, you know, it's not. If you go back to the actual Stone Age men themselves, I suppose they really were on the paleo diet, whether they liked it or not, they were all eating fish. They weren't. And it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's far easier to catch a fish than it is to catch a wild boar. <laughs> so, and um, I mean, oh, admittedly, the researchers are from southern Scandinavia and they were looking at seaside communities. Sure from 10,000 years ago. But they discovered that by far and away the major part of the diet was fish. And um, much as no doubt they would love to have been eating deer or, or the wild boar. And um, what was quite interesting, and I'm no, not sure what to make of this, just 3% of the diet was actually made up from plants, mushrooms, berries and nuts. But um, I know you're a paleo fan, so what do you make of that? Well, I'm a paleo fan because I'm also somebody who needs a lot of protein. Um, but, and it works for me. But one of the things that I want to really stress is that there's not any one one-size-fits-all diet. I mean, if you look at indigenous populations around the world, um, you see that, for instance, um, Eskimos, you know, Inuits, lived on a diet of fish and fish blubber. Uh, other Africans lived on a high dairy diet. Other indigenous populations had no dairy. Some were vegetarian. Some were big meat eaters. And all of them thrived. And, I mean, this was certainly discovered when Weston Price, that famous dentist, went around the world looking at the health of people. And he found that 
they were routinely healthy when they avoided processed foods, you know, like we have in the West now, and that break up the bulk of our diet, but that the contents of the diet just needed to be local to them, indigenous to them. So it makes perfect sense that the Scandinavians ate a lot of fish. And also, it probably means that for them, you know, in a colder climate, this was, there was a greater need for protein. It'd be really interesting to see what the paleo diet was in Southern Europe, let's say, mm. or Africa, maybe something completely different. Yeah. But they were living to 45, so it was obviously a good diet. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we need to eat double the fish, Brian. Mm. Okay. What's my name again? <laughs> I just don't remember anything these days. It's, it's old age. It is. I'm getting old. It is. And you, you the, are. I'm getting, you, I am getting old. <laughs> and the answer is Indian curry. I need to eat an Indian curry immediately because it contains curcumin, which is very, very good, apparently, for helping to maintain cognitive abilities in older people, which would include, of course, memory. And it's actually not the curcumin itself, it's turmeric within the curcumin. And it's the spice that gives the curry its yellow colour. That's the thing that really matters. And uh, they've been doing some tests on this from people as young as 50. I mean, children, really. <laughs> up to the age of 90, mature people. Um, who was all, but all, they were all suffering from mild memory loss. So they were given this as a, as a supplement, really, not as an Indian curry and found that over the course of the 18 months of the study, their memory started to improve. So what do you think about that? Well, I mean, turmeric is turning out to be, you know, <clears throat> the amazing spice, um, and the amazing super supplement. You're seeing that in studies using it, that it helps with all kinds of pain, um, it helps with, uh, of course, this memory issue and loads of other things. It's just an all-purpose health giver. And it's really interesting, for instance, that in areas where there is a lot of consumption of turmeric or curcumin, like India, um, there is so much, you know, so many fewer people have things like arthritis and degenerative mm. disorders mm. like that. So... Okay. Um, this is a really good supplement, and luckily, a lot of health food manufacturers are recognizing this. You know, you've even got turmeric in tea these days, so there's loads of ways you can take it. Mm. But, yeah, they don't seem to quite understand the mechanism that's going on, but they, it seems to be it's an anti-inflammatory. Mm. So that's what's actually, that's the positive impact on the brain. Well, and remember, when it gets right down to it, so much degenerative illness really has to do with inflammation. Mm. Um, as we talked about in our last podcast, in our latest issue of What Docs, um, we've got uh, information about inflammation affecting the brain. Mm. So, and in this podcast too, I think we, we refer to it. So that's the point. So much illness starts with inflammation. And if, you can, if you've got a firefighter like this, it's really important to incorporate it into your diet. Hmm, very good. 
Well, look, Lynn, I'm, uh, I'm off to get an Indian curry. So um, I hope you guys, before you get your Indian curry, look us up at wddty.com. But otherwise, I'm Brian Hubbard, and see you again soon. I'm Lynn McTaggart. It's great talking to you. Talk with you soon. Thank you.